All right, everyone. Welcome to the main EMS fireside chats with Don and Matt. This is our third fireside chat, and um, the first not in a government building. And the first not in a government building. It occurs to me that we're still not actually by a fireside. Uh, we'll have to get on that pretty shortly. We're actually sitting in my office and in, uh, in Portland right now, um, and we're uh, we're excited to bring this uh, uh, this new content to you. So inevitably. There has not been a single siren that has gone by in the entire time we've been prepping for this. So at least six ambulances are going to go by while we're sitting here. I, at least six. I, I think we should have an over-under. I'm going to go with four. See go with four? Yeah, All right. You go with six. We'll see how this goes. Um, so uh, Don and I have a couple things we want to want to touch base with you about. True to our, our described format in the past, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about updates, a little bit of time talking about FAQs, and a little bit more time talking about some educational topics. And um, we've been thinking about this quite a bit, and we've been talking about this a little bit, and we realize that this format might be helpful in transmitting some of the um, new changes that we're talking about in the protocols to the, to the community. And we're going to start that process today and start talking real generally, not in fine detail, but real generally about some of the uh, new protocols that we're going to be building into the uh, uh, into the EMS protocols that will come out in 2013. We're also going to spend some time in the FAQ section talking about the process and what that looks like. But um, uh, before we start, I just want to thank those of you who have fed back to us that you like this format. Um, I think John Powers ran a search and found that 250 of you had, or 250-ish of you had downloaded this, and a couple of you have fed back to me or to Don, and it seems like there's general interest in this, and we're hoping to build on that. So share that, share the word with all your friends, and uh, let's try to get the get more folks listening to this. And a quick reminder about that: we know that a lot of people are downloading this, but I'm not seeing a ton of people completing the test online, the evaluation, which is how you actually earn uh, continuing education credit for this. So I'm just trying to really remind people that once you've listened to this. Uh, log on to MemZed. If you don't remember how to log on to MemZed, if you found this in another manner, um, please contact me. I'll, happy, I'll be happy to get you in there, and we can, uh, we can give you credit for this. And as always, for any future updates that you want to hear about or future FAQs you have or even educational topics you want to hear about, please contact us through Don's email at the state and, uh, and let us know what you want to hear about. And for those of you that this may be actually your first podcast you've listened to, um, you just heard about this, we should probably, you know, remind people of who we are. So, Oh, yeah, that's um, right. <laughs> I'm Don Sheets. I'm the state education coordinator. Good point, Don. I'm Matthew Scholl. I'm the state's medical director of EMS. Yeah, we're searchable on iTunes now, so anybody could be stumbling across this right now. Anyway, anyone might come across this. We're right next to the... Uh, was it the main Wizards and Wiccans podcast? Yeah, the, the Pagan Worship. Okay, sorry, the podcast. Main yeah. Pagan Worship. Content. Something great. like that, yeah. Great. Well, on to our updates. Uh, first and foremost, our new rules go live on May 1st. We're recording this on April 11th, so it's a mere few weeks away. Don, any um, major thoughts about that you want to pass on? Uh, big thing I want to remind people is there, there are a lot of changes this year. This is a big, big rules update for us. Um, we're still working through making sure that all of the forms that we need to have, everything, processes and everything are in place for uh, our office so that this goes smoothly for providers and services. So I really encourage people, the new rules are up on our website in their final format. Um, log on there, you can you can download them, you can read them. Um, it's some great light reading if you want to go to bed at night. Um, 
but it's, it's really important that people have an understanding of what these rules say. Uh, admittedly, before I started working for Main EMS, I did not have a good handle on what those rules say, and there's a lot of information there that could have been very helpful to me in my past. Um, and in addition to the rules, some of the new rules updates, uh, specifically surrounding continuing education, is going to impact a lot of providers and services. So I also want to touch on that briefly. And this, this piece is going to kind of cross into our FAQs a little bit, um, but I think it's important to touch upon is, is the specifics of what's changing in 2013 for education. We're changing our um, topic content areas. Basically what we're doing is we're taking category two and four, which has historically been BLS and ALS topics. We've actually broken, well, we've kind of combined those and broken them down all at the same time. I'm going to be French for a moment here. <laughs> um, what we've done is we've we've kind of mirrored what the National Registry has in terms of uh, medical trauma, airway breathing and circulation. We've created all those different categories, and there's going to be content hours recorded in all of those, but there's no distinction between ALS or BLS anymore in the topic hours. There's only the distinction in, a, in, in the ALS and BLS skills. Why this really matters is that um, for the next three years when people go to relicense, we're basically going to lump those categories together and there's going to be a total content area that's required. In 2016, we're going to have an actual, there's going to be requirements in each of those topic areas and there's going to be an increase in the total number of CEHs that are required for each license level. So it's really important. We've also uh, created some new documents to help providers understand this a little bit. You can find those on our website. Uh, hopefully as of today, they should be up there. Um, if not, I will make sure that they are up uh, today being the 11th, not today of whenever you listen to this. Um, but they should be up there. I'll make sure that those are up there before uh, this podcast goes live. And um, by all means, if you have any questions, please contact our office. We're happy to talk people through this. Um, we know that it's some big changes for people, so we just want to make sure that this is smooth transition. Um, next, uh, Matt, you want to cover what we're hoping to do in the near future with this podcast? Yeah. Um... So this is an, our, our final update. Um, Don and I have been talking about this podcast, and we recognize that it has the potential to reach a lot of folks, and we're really excited about that. And we realize that there might be some utility in using this format as a way to educate about the protocols. Uh, as you'll hear in a few minutes, our, our process with the protocols moving forward will culminate when they go live on December uh, 1st. We expect that the education, the formal education for the protocols will start in September. The exact date is to be announced as we further define that. But starting next month we're going to start we're going to begin recording with the individual medical directors who are responsible for some of the changes in each of the sections and we're hoping that that will inform you all as to some of the major changes coming coming down the down the line in the protocols. And so please uh, you know share that with your your fellow providers and tune in. Starting um, this month, well, as I mentioned before, we'll talk in general about some of the major additions to the protocols, and we will begin next month going over the individual sections in a bit more detail and talking about some of the major changes, not just uh, what we did, but why we did it. And I think it's that why that's so important to us all, understanding the rationale behind making some changes. If a, there's a change in medication dosing or a change in medication or a change in therapy, uh, I think Don and I are really invested in you and you as a provider knowing why that change occurred. Um, and that's in step with our interest in 
in um, uh, moving from the strict technician uh, stance to more of a professional stance, giving more insight into what, what changes occur and why. And the only thing I want to specify about this is this is not going to replace the need for people to attend protocol updates. Um, like Matt said, this is going to be more specific about the why we're making the change, and it's not going to get necessarily as in-depth about um, medication dosing and, you know, if there are new medications, you know, the pathophysiology of how those are going to act on the body and all that. That's going to be in the protocol updates, um, which we're also hoping to have MVPB members involved in pretty heavily. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a little bit, actually. Yeah, thanks for that, that clarification, John Don's exactly right this is to this is adjunctive and, and really to help you understand what's coming up in the educational products for the protocols not to replace that process so great so that being said matt let's jump into our faqs and the first question for you is where are we at with protocol changes we uh seem to have lost our month of january as we discussed last uh the last podcast we did which we actually missed march unfortunately um due to scheduling but we in terms of uh creating a podcast we're actually we, we missed a month in there somewhere did we really wow. we did it time flies wow. um and we almost lost uh the months of february and march as well for yeah. our, our um actual mdpb meetings yeah we were uh, we definitely had a, an awesome winter um but that awesome winter did impact operations a little bit and that we had some pretty ugly winter on the mornings of the mdpb um, which did uh force us to cancel in January, we were able to muster through in both February, and then we had a, an alternate agenda, uh, alternate approach to the MDPB doing things kind of more in conference mode, conference call mode in, in March. But I'm happy to say that we had budgeted for at least one month off, um, and so we're, we remain on track for our protocol update in December 1st of 2013. Where we're at specifically is that draft one of the protocols has been completed or is 90% complete. There are one or two things that remain outstanding that we're going to be finishing in the next week or so. But draft one is actually in the hands right now of Maine EMS staff, the regional offices, and the MDPB members. Now, you as a provider have yet to see these, and part of the reason, that, and that's calculated, and part of the reason is that we don't want to get an early version which may be uh, subject to significant change out to the public just yet. But once we get input on draft one, which again is for really internal review, that will become draft two. Draft two will be uh, will have another uh, chance to vet internally, but, net, but essentially after that's done, that version will go to three groups. Uh, the groups are the education committee, who will begin working on some of the education uh, uh, resources. It will also go to operations. Operations will start looking at the impact operationally and start communicating with services about what that impact is expected to be. And the final group this will be available to is the public. That includes you as a provider, also your local hospital and the providers that will practice there, and as well as any other stakeholder that's interested in looking at this. So that's where we're at now and what we're planning on doing in the future. For the MDPB, uh, Don mentioned that there will be educational input from the MDPB, and we're still trying to flush ex out what that looks like. However, I'm very 
uh, optimistic that we'll be able to build on the involvement of the MDPB that occurred during the last protocol update. Um, and we will start even doing more in, line, in, in conjunction with the Education Committee. One of the things the MDPB did last time was to develop some educational products themselves, such as the FAQ paper and the white paper. I see that continuing, but I also see continuing um, involvement with um, delivering the Train the Trainer program intended for ICs at each of the regional levels. And I, one of the new things we're hoping to embrace this time around is getting members of the Education Committee along with members of the MDPB to help create de novo um, MEMS-Ed resources. Uh, last year was, or last update rather, was the first time we used MEMS-Ed to update to the protocols and approximately a fourth of you um, updated through that mechanism. We hope to be able to broker that and bring the content to even more folks this time around. I think one thing that we should just mention is it, it, I'd like to thank actually both John Powers and Kerry Pomelo, my predecessor, who put a lot of time and effort into um, getting MEMSET up and running in literally a week's time. Um, from the time that the uh, web space and software became available to them until uh, there was a product up on the internet was roughly a week, which is, is pretty incredible. They basically built an entire website and um, also, the MDPB was integral in helping. They actually recorded it, uh, a couple of the um, six regional meetings that existed. But one of the things we did learn from that is that we can probably do better with the audio. And we can probably do better about um, the interaction and, and the mechanism that we um, use to put the training up on MEMS Ed, which is why Matt talked a little bit about um, having a member of the MDPB and a member of the Education Committee actually come in and and do recordings similarly to what we're doing now for these podcasts and other trainings that have come since the original protocol update. So we're hoping that we're going to have uh, an even better product than we did the last time and that it'll be uh, a little bit smoother for everyone that's involved. Yeah, Don, you're right that it really is Don, John and Carrie who we have to thank for what MEMSED is right now. Um, but another group to add into that list of folks to thank is the Education Committee because it's really historically been the Education Committee that has developed these resources for all of our updates. And I think it's, um, it's, it, it's also uh, imperative that the MDPB work closely with the education committee to bring, uh, bring providers that education. And we're trying to continue that theme that started in 2011 and improve that connectivity uh, this time around. And this, this format is one of those ways to do that. And we're, we're really excited to be able to bring you some of those uh, uh, medical directors who were leaders in the changes that you'll see come up in the end of December. Great. So I guess our next question is, what's the education going to look like? And uh, I think it's safe to say that we're still going to do, um, we're still going to have the face-to-face -face education because we, we still see that there's a big draw for that in the state of Maine. Um, and we're certainly going to be looking, like we just said, at, the, at doing more online training. Um, and that there's still going to be, you know, person to person, the, the train the trainers that we did so that they can go back to their services where people aren't necessarily as available to attend either regional trainings or don't have good access to uh, the online training um, will also be there. Yeah, you know, I, I think that we learned a lot in the last protocol update. Really, um, 
we have Dan Batesy and Carrie Parmelo to, to thank for that process. And I, I think we went into that process with a interest in being novel and, and seeing if we can, um, uh, seeing how some of the new technology and, and new interaction between the MDPB and the Education Committee could uh, help us out. And really, Dan led this idea of having the MDPB and Education Committee members deliver the content for the Train the Trainer. And I think uh, he and Kerry really championed that, and I believe it was beneficial. And hopefully, if you have thoughts about that, please feed back to us. However, in all of the post-event analysis that we were able to do, it appeared as if people really liked that. We also have them to, to um, thank for really championing the um, uh, developing the content and championing this process of, of online uh, uh, learning. And I, I think it's fair to say that we'll continue that multifaceted approach to education in 2013 and offer a couple different ways to get this. Uh, but important to us really is the um, maintaining the purity of the message. And so one of the new things we're talking about is how to cut down on person-to-person -person message dilution which means de-emphasis of an important topic, or person-to-person -person pollution, which means degradation of the message. And we're going to try to come up with more ways to prevent those two things uh, by offering our ICs a lot more insight and a little bit more in-depth um, discussion with them. More about that, we, we're very early in this process, and we'll, we're still even working on, on, on these themes, but from a 30,000-foot view, we're, that's what we're um, uh, uh, moving toward. So. Uh, I think lastly surrounding uh, the protocols uh, is actually the discussion of format changes. Mm. It's going to be a, along with our rules, this is going to be another big change for many best providers. Um, yeah, you know, it, yeah. it occurs to me that um, I've been back home in Maine since 2003, and uh, since that time, so 10 years, we've had the exact same format of our EMS protocols, and I think it's probably well before 2003 that we adopted that format. I don't know if you know, Don, why. I, I found the other day a pocket-sized, it was slightly larger than what we have now, but I found a pocket-sized protocol book from 1992. Wow. What did it look like? Um, it, rather than being spiral-bound on top, it was spiral-bound on the side. It was about the size of a checkbook. Uh -huh. And uh, I think there was a total of like 12 pages to wow. it. Um, it, was, uh, it was a little bit bigger than that, but it was... Uh, it was pretty funny. It was actually printed on the colored paper. I thought you were going to say papyrus. Um, <laughs> might have been. It, it, it may actually have been. I'm not sure. But it was, Flintstone style. Yeah. Right? It was, Tablets. But, it, you know, it's funny. We talk about all the colored sections. I, I didn't really realize until I found this the other day that we actually used to use fully colored paper wow. of each color, wow. which is uh, why we've maintained the colored sections for all this time, is that it was colored paper. Well, um so I think the first change that folks will recognize, and we started talking about this, well, back in 2010 we began talking about this, uh, we are no longer going to be printing protocol books in 2013. We, um, we believe, well, first and foremost, it's a very expensive uh, prospect to print off uh, those 6,000 6, uh, protocol books, or 6,000 or more, because we share them with uh, outside stakeholders and along with our own uh, within within our EMS community, um, but it's very expensive to do that. But also, it it really um, we wonder how 
necessary it is to print off a book in an age of electronic devices. So Don and I are sitting here, both of us with a smartphone in our pocket. We're staring at two different computer screens. And it occurred to us in 2010 now that major the majority of providers either carry their own smartphone with them or have a, a tough book. Or, and some of you even have tough tablets or some type of tablet device in the ambulance with you. And so the utility of a paper-bound book is becoming less and less important. Um, now, the other thing we realized is that our format was so uh, uh, fixed because it had to be small enough to fit in a paper-sized book. But now that we've uh, moved beyond printing these things, we have the freedom to adopt other, other formats. And there are a lot of different states and a lot of different EMS services that have much more um, uh, visibly appealing and much more approachable formats, and we're interested in adopting one of them. It just so turns out we're also interested in moving forward on a project in which the six New England states all have some degree of commonality within their protocols. And um, we, we recognize that there are different formats across those six states, but one of the cleanest and most approachable and the nicest formats is New Hampshire's. And so all the states have agreed to kind of begin adopting that format moving forward. You're being far too kind. There are only three New England states. Ah, uh, yes. So Don's discuss Don means the three New England states of New Hampshire, Vermont, and Maine, followed by those who hang off the bottom of New England, right? Is that the, what you're the, Yeah, the wannabes. <laughs> Wannabe New yeah. England states. Um, the other thing that we are working on and, and something that Jay and I are really dedicated to is getting a fully functioning smartphone app up and running. Um, we really started to learn a lot about uh, the power of smartphone apps when we worked with some outside vendors to build two of them for the iPhone platform and the Android platform. Um, we, took, we basically took the protocols in a PDF format and indexed them and made them kind of easy to get to, but we're really interested in not only having uh, them displayed in a nice format, but going as far as to having them really indexed, being able to search them, being able to to um, uh, uh, actually put in, for instance, dosing calculators, etc. Um, there's a lot of neat ideas we have about these. If, if you have ideas yourself, please uh, push your ideas to me or Don or, or, or Jay because we'd love your input. Ultimately, we're looking for a highly functional mobile tool for you to use and access the, the, the um, protocols in. And so we're really interested in your input around that. And lastly, I, I while many of us have moved away from using um, ever even carrying the paper protocol books anymore, and I, honestly, I I don't know if I even even had one this last time around. Once I found out that there was a, an iPhone app, that, mm -hmm. that, was, that pretty much sealed it for me. We are still going to make the protocols available in a PDF format. So, yes. you know, I know that there are many services out there who historically have actually printed off full-page copies of this put them in a three-ring binder in the truck. If there are services that still want to do that, we, we absolutely want to be sensitive to that, and we want to make that available to you. So, um, Good point. It, it, it's still there. It's still going to be an option. We're just we're trying to move to a more cost-efficient um, mechanism that allows for easier availability. And the other benefit is, you know, with, uh, with an application, you know, an iPhone app or an Android app that we have um, some level of control over, if, if we need to add in FAQs, we need to do other things, that can all be put right onto the end of the app, and it's all right there in real time, and we're, we're not dealing with, you know, 6,000 protocol books flying around that there's an issue with that we have to try to catch up with. 
Yeah, good point, Don. I mean, as we're moving further and further toward a technological um, uh, world, we also want to be sensitive to those who aren't interested in, in aren't interested in evolving as quickly. And so the 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 protocols will continue to exist as they do right now on the main EMS website in a in a PDF format that any service can take and have printed off and bound in some ways, either a half page, full page, three-quarter page, whatever you want to do as far as size goes. And I know a lot of you have done something similar, and particularly because the font is really hard to read on the very small pocket size books, many of you have actually taken those and blown them up into a bigger size. So that will still continue to be an option for folks moving forward. Great. Great. So on to our educational topics for today. Um, do you want to lay out how you want to do this today, Matt? Yeah, so um, Don and I have been talking, and in, in, in line with some of the stuff we mentioned in the, in the um, updates, we're interested in starting the process of thinking about the protocols. Even though it, they are 12 months away, um, I, sorry, eight months away, I don't think it's too soon to start, to start setting the groundwork and sowing some seeds. Um, and in today in particular, we want to discuss, in, in really broad strokes, some of the new things from the protocols. And in particular, we want to begin talking about some of the new protocols themselves. Now, what, I, what we're not going to do today is talk in depth and, and really lay out the specifics of the protocols because in all honesty, we're, in, we're still in the process of, of, of ironing out the fine details of any of these protocols. And as I mentioned earlier, we're only at the first draft of the protocols and the MDPB and the main EMS staff and the regional offices are still reviewing that process. But what we're interested in doing is more contextually uh, discussing these protocols. And an example of that would be why are we are adding these new protocols and then what the general elements of the protocol are without going into too many details. Um, now, one of the topics, though, I think we should spend a little bit more time on, and in part as we, uh, we believe this because as we were talking about this at the level of the MDPB, it became apparent that there is a tremendous amount of variation in the treatment of one of the new protocol topics, and those are apparent life-threatening events. So what we'll do is we'll talk about the first three topics, and then we'll get a little bit more into the apparent life-threatening event. You're one of the go. things that I, I want to mention to, to mention to everyone is that we've been going through a, a process to look at our protocols and compare them both nationally um, as well as locally, and it's part of that process that guides what what we did. Now, um, Kevin Kendall, um, formerly from Central Maine and from LifeLight, who many of you know, is one of our uh, MDPB members, and Kevin really led this process for us, doing really two things. Um, one called a macro gap analysis and the other called a micro gap analysis. And what we call the macro gap analysis is that Kevin took the list of protocol topics we have and compared them to national suggested protocol lists as well as the protocol lists from the other New England states when they were available. Um, and in that process we, d we realized there are certain protocols that others have that we don't. Now some of the protocols that others have um, we feel are not necessary. They're either um, uh, redundant to what we already have or they're overly simple, simplistic and we don't know if they really add anything to patient care. But there are a couple things that others have that we don't, that we realized would be nice to, um, to add. And that's, that's partly where this list of, of topics comes from. 
And the microgap analysis is a sort of a very close look at the commonalities and differences between any set of protocols. For instance, um, Massachusetts has a chest pain protocol, Rhode Island has a chest pain protocol, New Hampshire has a chest pain protocol, and Maine has a chest pain protocol. And the microgap analysis looks at the commonalities as well as the differences between each of those protocols and lays out sort of um, what those differences are. And that was intended to help inform us um, as we're considering this project of bringing all the protocols closer together. So that's, that's in part where this list comes from. And the list really includes four topics. Uh, topic number one is drowning, which we don't have a protocol for at present. Um, the second is post-resuscitation care. Uh, the third is pediatric pain control. And the fourth is pediatric apparent life-threatening events. So let's just touch in general over drowning, post-resuscitation care, and pediatric pain control, and then we'll get more into detail a little bit with some of the questions about apparent life-threatening events. So drowning is, a, uh, is an important and common cause of injury, especially in the pediatric and the adolescent eight populations. Uh, also important for young male adults uh, with alcohol on board, which seems to be a common uh, recipe for disaster in many different instances, but um, pediatrics, adolescents, young males with alcohol, and young males with alcohol on mechanized vehicles are all at very high risk for drowning in proximity to water. Um, as a state with a very large water line and numerous lakes, ponds, pools, etc., we're at um, a, special risk, a special risk for drowning type events. And up until this point have not had explicit protocols surrounding drowning. Um, this was one of the things that came up in Kevin's macro gap analysis that we wanted to address. Um, just an overview of the protocol, I think it, it's fair to say that we know how to resuscitate people. We're very good at managing resuscitation, both from a respiratory and from a cardiac standpoint. Remember that there are nuances, though, about drowning that are important to take into, a, into account, and those are built into this protocol. But also, and, and probably most important, this protocol offers guidance and decision-making support on which patients have the potential for a meaningful outcome, i.e. survival, and which patients really do not, and how to decide which patients to resuscitate and which patients not to resuscitate. And a large amount of this is based on some work that's been done in the last couple of years in the, the form of a meta-analysis looking at all reported cases of drowning and really trying to define what some of the, the um, uh, elements associated with survival are. And those two major elements are time submerged as well as the temperature of the water. And using that information, we can help define which patients have a chance for survival and which don't. And we can use that as we're approaching a situation to help guide, a, guide which patients we should uh, initiate resuscitation in. Now, as far as the post-resuscitation care... Um, one quick thing, Matt. Yes. Um, under the, uh, that meta-analysis that you actually talked about, we'll make sure that we actually... We, we have a copy of that. We'll make sure that we put that up on... on um, uh, good point. Good for the point. podcast for show notes so that you guys can actually take a look at that and see directly from where this protocol came. Great. That's a great point. Um, on, on to post-resuscitation care. We, uh, we started spending a little bit more attention on resuscitation in our 2011 protocol updates uh, and focusing a little bit on some of the, the changes that were uh, occurring at the level of the AHA and reinforcing some of those changes and highlighting some of the therapies that are linked to survival. Um, really focusing on 
uh, effectiveness of CPR, uh, focusing on decreasing interruptions to chest compressions and et cetera. Um, some of our services in the state of Maine have, have really helped prove the utility of those changes and, and in particular, the services that have been watching their outcomes very closely have recognized tremendous improvements in survival, in some cases, threefold improvements in, in survival. So the new protocols are going to reinforce some of those new changes. There's been even new information that have occurred since that point in time, some of which we talked about in our first ever podcast, for those of you who are interested in listening back and talking about cardiac arrest and, and, and how to really maximize the uh, outcomes in this cardiac arrest. But what's interesting and what we realized through Kevin's macro gap analysis that we, is that we've never focused on continuing goals of care after resuscitation. And that's what this is intended to do. And it really will focus on three major considerations. And the first one being, what is my goal blood pressure and how do I achieve that for a patient after arrest? The second major goal is screening for acute coronary syndromes, in particular screening for ST segment elevation MI um, and what to do in those situations. And the third thing that we're building in this is a consideration for therapeutic hypothermia. Now, there's, we'll have more information on that and what that looks like as we move forward toward the go live and more education around the protocols. But uh, there, is, there has been an increasing number of EMS services across the country that have invested in therapeutic hypothermia programs, and we are learning from them as we move forward and uh, as we build ours. So more to come on that. You know, I, just, I think it's, uh, it says a lot about our system that we're finally at a position where uh, not only are we talking about a post-resuscitation care uh, protocol, but we actually legitimately have a need for one in, yes. in large numbers. Yes. Um, not, not even, I mean, we think back, we had code saves in the past, but we, we have legitimately large numbers now of people that are actually surviving out of hospital cardiac arrest because of the work that the MDPB and individual services have done to yeah, absolutely. increase survival rates. So it's pretty, it, it's just being a cardiac nut, I'm, I'm pretty excited about the fact that we're going to actually have a, a protocol for this now. I completely agree, Don. I, you know, in some, in some situations, more than 30% of the time patients arrive at the hospital with a heart rate, which is phenomenal. It's, it's really, really cool. And that's for all rhythms. Yeah. You hear quoted some of the best EMS services having survival rates to the hospital of 50% for VF and VT, but to have an all rhythm survival to the hospital of 30% is pretty darn good. So, um, you know, you're right that it's, it, it's time for this protocol because we are, we have gotten very good at survival, and it's time now to start thinking about what to do after ROSC, or return of spontaneous circulation. Now, the third new protocol we're building in, it may be a standalone protocol, and it might be um, uh, attached to the adult protocol, uh, is the pediatric pain control protocol. And in our current protocols, we're really not too explicit about dosing ranges in pediatrics, and we ask providers to call uh, uh, online medical control for questions. That's uh, green 17 5-C. But there's lots of new literature coming out about pain control and EMS, the value of pain control, as well as the safety and efficacy of pain control in pediatrics. There's also a lot of new data that's come out in the last five to ten years about the barriers to pain, pain control in children and how to overcome those barriers. And one of the major barriers of pain control in children is starting an IV because it's a painful, difficult procedure in kids and it can become a major barrier for the provision of pain medications. 
we know that there are ways to overcome all of these barriers, and one of the ways to overcome the barrier of having to start an IV is to give medications in a non-intravenous form. So in the protocols, we're building in options for intranasal fentanyl for pain control, which uh, I'm really excited for. Um, we're really interested in being able to, to manage pain adequately um, for a lot of different reasons. No, number one, it improves patient comfort, and an, an improving patient comfort improves the act of transporting a patient because it's much less painful to have a femur fracture with fentanyl on board bouncing down the road in Maine than not have fentanyl on board. And so it can be a really painful process for patients to transport if they're not, uh, pain's not under control. The other thing is that by adequately addressing pain, we are better able, able to evaluate a patient. And this is, a, this is a, a lesson learned from the emergency medicine experience when we used to say, hold off on pain meds till the surgeon gets a chance to feel the patient's belly. And what we know about those situations is that the patients who were really uncomfortable had skewed vital signs and a difficult to interpret physical exam. And by treating pain adequately, we alter or we improve a patient's pathophysiology, improve the vital signs, and in many cases, improve the patient's physical exam findings. And then finally, by managing pain, we can sometimes even improve pathophysiology. For instance, if Don has a rib fracture, he's not going to breathe as adequately if he's in pain. But if his pain is controlled, he can then have better respiratory effort. And so in some ways, by treating pain, we improve uh, pathophysiology. Now, those are all the acute reasons to manage pain. There's even increasing literature coming out about the long, long-term benefits of pain control. One of those in the military literature is a decreased incidence of PTSD for soldiers who are wounded but have adequate pain control in the field. And in the pediatric literature, we know that um, inadequate or not, not prompt pain control leads to hypersensitization of pain pathways and, and leads to um, a sensitization for pain in the future. Um, and we, we, there's some consideration or th some belief that this may lead to problems down line with, with, uh, with when, when the child grows up to an adult. So we're really interested in, in addressing this explicitly by addressing the barriers for pain control. And uh, again, that will maybe even be its own standalone protocol or built into the adult protocol moving forward. If you guys actually want to hear more um, really good information on, on some pain control, there's actually another podcast out there that I'll... Um, if you're enjoying this format, it's uh, MCRIT, Dr. Scott Weingard from New York does it. He actually recently did a, 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 a podcast called uh, Pain as a Presser, and, and it really delves into a lot of what you were just talking about, Matt, about um, how leaving a patient in pain can actually really skew their vitals and actually can mask some serious underlying uh, hemodynamic instability. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just... If people are interested in it, it's another. It's a great podcast, and there's a lot of really good information that he puts out there. Um, and also along with this, we'll make sure to put up some uh, show notes on a couple of studies that uh, were distributed amongst the MDPB about pediatric pain control and the barriers that Matt was referring to. Great. Now, <clears throat> the final uh, new protocol that uh, Don and I think we probably should talk a little bit more about is also related to pediatrics, and it's under the auspices of the altered life-threatening event. Uh, now, in general, I, um, I think we've all heard this thing that ch children are not small adults, and uh, I'm going to tell you that I think that's actually been 
deleterious to us in the long run. And and I say that because I think that um, uh, that that mentality and that um, that statement strikes fear in the hearts of emergency providers when we encounter a really sick kid. And my personal belief, and I think Don shares this with me, we were just talking about it earlier today, I believe that children really are like small adults in about 90% of the time. And then at about 10% of the time, children are different. And it's important for us as emergency providers to know when kids are similar to adults, uh, when and how kids are similar to adults, and then when and how kids are not similar to adults. And ALTI is probably one of those situations that is unique to kids, but in some ways similar to uh, something we see in adults all the time, which is syncope. So ALTI, or apparent life-threatening event, can in some ways be a metaphor for syncope in adults. And we'll get more into that um, uh, in a little bit. Now, the other thing I think which is unique for all practitioners of emergency medicine, uh, if you're an EMT, an advanced provider, a paramedic, an emergency nurse, or an emergency physician, one of the things that's essential for us to know is our field of study. We've got to know what we are supposed to know frontwards and backwards so that we can apply it under duress at 2 in the morning to a very, very sick person. But it's also to help, helpful for us to know the steps beyond our immediate care and the way that downstream providers treat and think about patients. For instance, for me, in my, when I put on my hat as an emergency physician, it's nice for me to know a little bit about how a neurosurgeon thinks about intracranial hemorrhages. It helps guide what I do and it helps uh, streamline the process of patient care. And the same holds true for a paramedic or an advanced provider or an EMT when they're thinking about their patients, knowing what downstream providers think as well. And so when we talk about apparent life-threatening events today, we're going to um, kind of not only talk about what we need to know and what we need to do, but how others think about this and then what might happen to the patient moving forward. So Don, I think you've come up with a, a list of questions for us to consider. Um, why don't we walk through those questions together? And if you guys have questions, like always, feel free to buzz, uh, throw, throw an email to me and, me and Don, Don and I. I guess would be the more grammatically appropriate way to say that. I think me is right, actually. Me? Really? Because if you were to if you were to remove me from it, you would be sending it. Oh, to, that's right. Look at look see, at you, you drop right. some knowledge on. Yeah, it. I know, I know. So if you have questions, push us an email, <laughs> and we will we'll uh, we'll put that and build that into our FAQs moving forward. So, Don't all right, now let's talk. Let's think about our, our our what questions you have here. All right, so you've told us what an apparent life-threatening event is in terms of you know the acronym of ALT and whatnot, but let's talk a little bit more about what. An ALTI actually is so great question. Uh, so um, an ALTI or apparent life-threatening event is defined as an episode that's frightening to the observer. So it occurs in the pediatric uh, population, and it is uh, it is reported by an observer. And the things that might be um, uh, uh, frightening to the observer are apnea, and this apnea might be what we call central, sometimes obstructive. Central apnea is an absence of respiratory effort due to lack of input from the CNS respiratory centers. And in adults, you can think of what opioids like uh, heroin or morphine or oxycodone do. It dulls the respiratory drive. Obstructive apnea is due to an obstructive process involving the airway. So think of a foreign body um, in, uh, as an, uh, an example of that. And any apnea that causes significant compromise, a cyanosis, bradycardia, any color change or change in muscle tone, that's considered significant. Now, other things that might fall under the definition of apnea 
are uh, color change. Usually the kids become very pale. Occasionally they become erythematous, sometimes plethoric. Um, they might, we might see change in muscle tone, which is usually uh, limp uh, muscle tone. Sometimes uh, much less common though is rigidity. And then choking or gagging are also under that. So the, the, the event is defined as something scary to the observer and it typically involves one of those four things. Apnea, color changes, changes in muscle tone, and then choking or gagging. Now, it's important here to conceptualize the age group we're talking about. And uh, Don and I were talking earlier, we wanted to, to remind folks of the general breakdown in children from age zero days to 18 years. Don, you want to walk us through what those definitions are? Yeah, so uh, when we're talking about this, we're, we're really looking at a, a couple of age brackets here. So the fir first one we're looking at is actually newborns, which is the zero to 30 days. Um, then we start looking at infants, which is our one month to 12 month. We have our toddlers, which are one to three years, preschool age children. Uh, we're looking at three to five school age children, five to 12 years. And then our adolescents are 12 to 18. Um, you can also think of, you know, um, puberty as factoring in there a little bit. Yeah. Um, now, when, we're, when we think about Altis, we're most of the time thinking about the newborns and infants. So that's newborns, again, 0 to 30 days, infants 30 days to 12 months. Sometimes, though, toddlers. And, and when we look at different resources, most of these Altis are occurring in young, new-age infant, but sometimes up into the toddlers less than two years old or so. Um, now, again, uh, these are usually happening in younger children, and in some studies, the mean age of all Altis is somewhere in the order of 3.1 3 months of, of age. And in general, the younger the child, the more uh, concerning the event. And, and depending on the age, mortality will actually change. And so in neonates less than 12 hours old, the reported mortality is up to 27%. However, the overall mortality of all Altis is much, much less. Some would say less than five, and other references say even less than 1% for all events. But again, the younger you are, the more concerning the event, with very young, less than one day old, having high high mortalities. It just point this out that that same, the same age bracket that we're talking about and the frequency is the same age bracket uh, that we still really worry about, our, our SIDS kids. Yes. Um, and that it's that same age bracket with the same, you know, um, same breakdown between zero and 30 days and uh, one month and 12 months, and it becomes less frequent as our children move into uh, the toddler age. Um, yep. So it's probably a good thing to keep in, in mind is the, the presence of ALTI and then also keeping in the back of your mind that risk of, of our SIDS kids. You know, that's an interesting uh, idea, and, and some actually used to call ALTIs near SIDS, or, or SIDS is the, is the acronym for Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. I, I think that... Um, it's fair to say we've learned a lot about SIDS. We've learned a lot about Altis in there. While there are some commonalities, there's also some differences, and Altis um, really are sort of, sort of worth considering in and of themselves, too. But Don's right that the age group is very similar. There are commonalities. We used to directly link the two together, and now uh, maybe not as much. So how often do these actually occur? That's, so that's a great question. And, you know, unfortunately, one of the things that Don and I try to do is to search our own uh, database, um, and we realized that we didn't necessarily have an easy way to search for Altis in our own database. So we had to look at the medical literature, and 
it's interesting. The varial, the vari, vari, there's variation in, in the incidence based on the reference that we look at, but in general, they occur somewhere between 0.5 to 2.5 cases per 1,000 infants. Now, that's, um, that's overall. That's, that's for all comers, and that's based out of the emergency medicine literature. What we also found based in the EMS literature is that in all um, in, in a certain service, they were reviewing all their calls for service in infants. They found that Altis accounted for 7.5% of those infant slash pediatric EMS calls. So it may be, the incidence may be small overall, but within the population of children, it might actually account for a large percentage, up to 7.5 or so percentage of your of your call volume for that age group of, of kids. Well, it'd be interesting to see how many providers that listen to this after hearing this process and what actually goes into this, how many providers can actually think of a call that they've been on where they go, oh, maybe I should have looked at that a little differently. And, and I'd be willing to bet that the the recognition of, of NLT in the pre-hospital setting is probably pretty low right now, and that's why we don't have a good handle on on what the incidence of these patients really is. That's an interesting idea, yeah. And I, and I think it also has to do with failings of our education system to really to really inform folks about this, in part because, as you'll hear in a little while, there is some, there's some controversy on how to best care for these folk, these kids, and, and what to do for them, but yeah. All right, well, you bring up a valid point with the education thing. I mean, we again, Matt and I talking about uh, our own experiences and whatnot, we actually were able to uh, rethink a patient that I actually turned over care to of, <laughs> at one point to him in which we we had a discussion afterwards of, you know, hey, really what happened here? And then uh, it, it was a good ed educational opportunity for me not long after I had become a paramedic of, uh, hey, maybe, maybe you should pay attention to these patients. And, uh, you know, fortunately that everything went fine on that call and, um, it was a good experience, though, and I think that this is a, a, a good opportunity to capture a, a demographic of patients that we probably miss on a frequent basis. And I think, you know, it's interesting. I think in general, when we miss things in in EMS or emergency medicine, it's it's in large part because they are relatively infrequent, and they're, uh, as we'll learn about also, these kids come with a very bad story, concerning story, but they look so good when we see them. And I think that's the part that that tricks us all up is that the kids are looking normal when we evaluate them, but yeah. the parents say they weren't normal a while ago. So right along with that is why do these patients look so good? Yeah, so that, that's a great question, and I think it's what's at the core of sometimes tricking us, uh, that we, we hear this call and we get really geared up for a super sick kid and we get there and the child doesn't appear as sick as we heard. And, and I think you know, it's here where the metaphor of syncope becomes helpful. So consider the last patient that you went to who had a diagnosis of syncope. And you heard this event, um, that the patient's sitting there having dinner and suddenly collapses and falls to the ground. And you think to yourself, you're going to resuscitate someone, and then dispatch calls you up and informs you the patient's up and walking and awake and alert. And you get there and the patient looks great. I think it's important to use that metaphor because at the core of that metaphor there are similarities between syncope and ALTI. Now the, the similarities are that the event itself is transient but the pathophysiology persists and I think that's the important piece to consider here. And just like in syncope the event may recur 
mask because the pathophysiology continues. So think of syncope caused by a transient arrhythmia. The, the classic case I had was a guy who was working on his car. Now the engine was off, the, but the garage door was closed. It was a well-ventilated garage, but there was no CO. He was walking around and was just about ready to look under the engine block to figure out why some fluid was leaking, and he became unresponsive. This was witnessed by his wife, who said there was no seizure-type activity, and he woke up, there's no postictal period, and the event was brief. This was a guy who was in his 60s, but no cardiac history, and he comes into the hospital and he looks, for all intents and purposes, great. We talked a lot about what to do with this guy, we worked him up, we ended up admitting him, and uh, nothing really came of his care for the first 12 hours he was there. But just as he was um, getting wheeled down to uh, get a chest x-ray the next day, he uh, arrested and went into a VF arrest. Now luckily, because this was witnessed, because the, the admitting team got right on it, he survived and he went on and got a, had an ICD placed and he's doing well today. But the same kind of thing, this this transient event that can be, be reversible, but, reversible, but who, that has an associated um, persistent pathophysiology happens in ALT2. So the kid might have become uh, limp with color change and choking because of an infectious process and while they look good now that infectious process still continues and so it's that reason why kids can look so good when we see them after an alti. Awesome. I think this is another example of we, we can throw this right in with our syncope, we can throw it in with our TIA patients. TIA, oh great, another and, great and our, example. And our alti yeah. patients, we can all keep those lumped together and just remember that yeah they look good now, yeah it looks like it's resolved, it's coming back. <laughs> but <laughs> it might come back. Yes. And in fact, I think TIA is the greatest of those examples because we can actually, we can start getting an idea of the risk of recurrence based on some of the patient-specific factors when we look at that patient moving forward. And I think it's also important to recognize that just because they look good, it doesn't mean they're out of the woods. Right. So that, that leads right into our next question of uh, if they look good, do I really need to bring them to the hospital at 3 a.m.? Yeah, so I think that mantra, which we just came up with, if they look good, they're not out of the woods. Yeah. <laughs> that rhyme, I think you keep in the back of your mind for Alties, syncope, and, and TIA. And, and I think it's important to remember what we just talked about. Just because the patient might not look as ill as they had before, remember the event has resolved, but the pathophysiology persists. And it's that which means we need to transport all these patients for further evaluation. All right, so let's let's chat about some of the causes of ALTI. What, what's what's going to make this happen? So another great question, and I think it's important to recognize that there are many, many, many causes of ALTI. And sometimes, uh, well, actually many times, it's difficult to find the exact cause of ALTIs. Now, we're going to quote you a lot of different um, incidences and causes of ALTI. And I'm going to warn you that if you sit here with a with a um, piece of paper and pen and you add up all the percentages that we're spewing your way, they will add up to greater than 100%. Okay, quick thing here. Yes. D didn't we just talk about the use of paper and pencil? Oh, yeah. Paper you're sitting there with your, with your iPhone <laughs> or your Android and you're using the calculator on it. Yes, you people, will find... People don't do it addition anymore. Okay. All right, so if you're using your calculator on your, your mobile, uh, mobile device, you may find that the, num the percentage or the incidence adds up to greater than 100%, and the reason for that is we're pulling these incidences from a lot of different references, and we use them mostly for um, 
perspective and not necessarily, they're not always concrete, but they're up to. So the incidence of a GI cause may, may be in some references up to 50%, but is, some, is more likely a little bit less than that. But we quote you that up to 50% to make you recognize that GI causes are a, sub, substantive, uh, cause, a substantive cause of these events. Now, um, the tricky thing about Alties, just like syncope, is that many cases we don't find a cause. Now, we call that idiopathic uh, syncope, which usually means we doctors are idiots and the patient has pathology we can't find, right? So idiopathic is one way to think about that. Um, and that, again, is somewhere between 30 to 50% of the cases. So a good percentage of case times we cannot find the, the, the cause of syncope. Now, GI causes, I, I earlier mentioned, also account for a, a large number of these. And in some case reports, they may be up to 50% of causes uh, with GERD and other causes like GI infections, colic, esophageal dysfunction, volvulus, intussusceptions, and other things accounting for the major GI causes. Uh, there are also neurologic causes, which may be as high as 30% of cases, and those are from seizures, central apnea, infections such as meningitis or encephalitis, injuries, and then also one of the things we got to worry about, unfortunately, is non-accidental trauma or child abuse. And then there can be congenital malformations that lead to um, neurologic causes. Respiratory causes may account for up to 20% of the cases, and those are, again, infections, aspiration, reactive airways disease, accidental smothering, um, especially in a sleeping type situation when a parent rolls over on a child, and then airway obstruction from all, all different sorts of, uh, all different types of things. Um, cardiovascular causes, which is probably one of the things we think about a lot in, um, in, in kids, only accounts for up to 5% of cases. And uh, in some reported cases of syncope, that's a similar number for syncope, 5% of syncope cases as well. And these are usually from rhythm abnormalities. Um, this is where we start thinking about things like WPW, long QT uh, 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 syndrome or other rhythm abnormalities, Brugada syndrome, etc. Uh, congenital cardiac malformations play a role here as, as well as abnormalities of the great vessels. Myocarditis and cardiomyopathy are also uh, round out the cardiovascular causes or some of the cardiovascular causes. Um, metabolic and endocrine abnormalities account for up to 2 to 5% of the cases, and these are electrolyte disturbances hypoglycemia, and other metabolic derangements that can occur in kids. We mentioned non-accidental trauma, child abuse, which may account for up to 3% of the cases. And finally, drugs and toxins, um, both intentionally and accidentally um, uh, uh, provided, could, could be a cause. Great, great. So what do I do with them? How do I treat them? So great question. I, I think, um, so one of the things that's so unique to what we do in EMS is that if you think about every single person that's going to touch that patient moving forward, the, the emergency department, the pediat pediatrician group, the pediatric intensivist, uh, who, whoever, none of those folks see the kid in their environment. And I think that it's really, this is one of those situations where it's so important for us to really put on our detective uh, uh, hats and do some really detailed um, observations of what's going on in the home. So uh, the major things we do for these folks are, number one, if they are sick and ill, we resuscitate them. If the kid appears well, we really need to get, get to work in as far as detailed evaluation. That detailed evaluation means a lot of attention to history. So 
that includes um, a detailed description of the event, what happened, what exactly was concerning to the observer, was it apnea, color change, change in tone, etc. Uh, has this ever happened before? Uh, under what circumstances did this occur? Feeding, sleeping, activity, etc. If the kid was sleeping, what was the what position was the child in? Um, what other objects were in the bed, crib, what type of bedding was there, etc. If the child was awake, what was happening at the time of the event? Were they feeding? Uh, were they choking? Etc. Where was the child located? Crib, car, car seat, patient's arms. What have been recent health concerns and also historic health concerns like past medical history? Things like fevers, changes in weight, etc. Are there any clues in the environment for non-accidental trauma? How do the family interface with the child? What are the social, cue, social cues you see? Um, remember, again, we are the only ones that will see the patient in their own environment. And so there's a lot of, of good information that only we can obtain uh, moving forward. Is there anything that resolved the event? Um, was it do, did, did the kid get CPR? Did the kid get uh, stimulation? What was it that made them come around? Any medications that they're on? And we already mentioned past history. Uh, those are all the things in the history that we really want to focus on. Then we get to the physical exam. We certainly want to look at the vitals, the primary survey, and use those to help guide the next steps. But then on top of that, think of the secondary survey and all the above causes that we, we discussed. And then think of finding specific to those causes, things like infection, murmurs, breathing problems, etc. Um, now, some of the things we talked about in the above list when we we're talking about the causes of Altis, some of those causes will only come to light after screening tests are done at the level of the hospital. Many of these patients go on to have labs performed. Some of these patients end up um, having uh, imaging performed of some sort. And therefore, it's important to transport these patients for emergency evaluation, even if they look good. Now, in some cases, the patient's parents might say, no, the kid looks so good right now and might be resistant to transporting. But I think it's important in these cases for us to continue to advocate. And this is why it's so important to know what downstream providers um, are going to do, because it helps inform us when we're talking to parents about the potential uh, the fact that the event occurred, we've got to find out the cause and consider that the pathophysiology may still be present to make this recur. All right, so just back up here and make sure I got this right. So really, if I think about this, this is where I get to be Sherlock Holmes here. Absolutely. And I get to, I get to pick up on the minute detail that's going to, you know, show me the facts that lead me down the road to figure out that, you know, it was uh, the professor that, you know, the professor in the professor bathroom with a, can, with, a, with a candlestick. Right. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So we just want to make sure that even though it may seem minute, that we really want to have detailed evidence that's supporting that, you know, maybe there is something going on here. We want to be able to pass along as much information as possible that creates this big case at the end that, hey, we've really got, we, we really may have a problem here. Yes, I, I think you're exactly right. The more contemporary among us may not use Sherlock Holmes, they might use Batman, but still the... Uh, the, the metaphor is complete, detective work, right? So the sort of the classic Sherlock Holmes detective or the Dark Knight detective, whatever. I think uh, you want to be a good detective. <laughs> Iron Man being Sherlock Holmes is suspicious. I'm just going to put it out there. <laughs> they were still good books. <laughs> Don't judge me. All right. So we've got our part covered. So what are the next steps that's going to happen in the management of the hospital? So red event, and you know this is where we bump into some levels of controversy because there there are there are a lot of um, a lot of approaches 
to uh, the patient who has suffered an ALTI. And in many of those approaches are really guided by the circumstances of the event and the, the patient's appearance, physical exam, and other historical findings that we run into. But just, um, it, just to know, the workup could include any of the following. Those would be blood tests, such as a complete blood count, chemistries, which get electrolytes and renal function, cultures, blood cultures, uh, metabolic studies, such as lactate, ammonia, etc. Sometimes we look at urine, not only for evidence of infection, um, but other, for other reasons, uh, especially when we're concerned about metabolic causes of, of, uh, of Alties. Some of these kids will go on to have x-rays uh, looking for pneumonia. Some of these kids may even have CT scans, especially if we're concerned about non-accidental trauma or perhaps even um, uh, 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 abdominal causes. Uh, we may consider abdominal Im imaging those situations. Um, there, you know, Don and I looked at this and looked into this, and there are some proposed evaluation schemes. They include things like O2SATs, fundoscopy for hemorrhages. That's when you look in the back of the eye at the retina, and that's for for uh, situations such as shaken baby syndrome, CBC glucose lactate, chest x-ray, pertussis swabbing, urine microscopy, metabolic studies, and then a really detailed history. That's one potential proposed evaluation scheme. But we mentioned that mostly to give you an idea that the evaluation can be pretty detailed in these kids and can include some higher level studying that would go on at the level of the hospitals. Now, that's in contrast to others who say, listen, the most important thing we do for those kids is to bring them in the hospital, observe them over time, and look for recurrence of this event. Because if the event recurs, we may be able to get an idea of what happened based on that recurrence. And so there are very different approaches to, to, to ALTI um, uh, depending on what reference you look at. But just know that most of those uh, who are building these, these uh, evaluation schemes uh, require evaluation at the level of the hospital, either imaging and labs or prolonged observation in the form of an admission to the hospital. Now, that brings up the question, who does get admitted? And, and again, many times that's guided by the findings during the immediate workup. Certainly, the younger the child, the more likelihood for admission because, as we mentioned earlier, there's a higher mortality in the younger population, and it's those that we really want to watch and observe very closely. There are some decision support tools when physicians are thinking about uh, who to admit, but they have varying sensitivity or specificity. Um, and so, uh, uh, they may or may not be utilized by the people you're working with. There are some situations in which a patient may be discharged, um, but even under those situations, close follow-up is really warranted, and most of the time we define that as less than 24 hours. And then even if the patient could be followed as an outpatient, sometimes there are circumstances which would uh, force us to consider admission. Those are cases in which the uh, patient may be very inaccessible, uh, the parents may not have a great understanding of what the event is. We may not be able to achieve that close follow-up, et cetera, et cetera. And under all those circumstances, we might, um, we might still admit the child. All right, so I'm working my uh, per diem job this weekend. I'm actually going to be on a truck, excitedly. If I run into this, what's the bottom line? What do I need to know? Great. Great question, Don. I think that's a great way to wrap up this conversation, actually. Um, I think the bottom line here is uh, the purpose of this new protocol is going to be really to remind you that uh, we really want you to be a good detective. Uh, you, in EMS, we're the only people who can get, uh, who, who are in the immediate healthcare stream of the patient that can really see the patient in their quote-unquote natural environment. So remember, do a good history. Do a really good physical exam. Think about the causes we talked about and look for clues in the home as to some of those causes. Also, um, do, do remember, do good vitals. 
check a glucose, monitor the patient. Remember, there are those instances of cardiac events, so we want to monitor the kid. And then finally, never forget to pass your findings on to the hospital staff. And there's two mechanisms that should be uh, performed in, in, in conjunction to pass on information to the hospital, and those are word of mouth, so discussing this with nurses and doctors, but also in writing. And your, write, your run report or your quick sheet is so essential in the care of these patients because, again, you are the only one who see the patient in their home. You may have clues to what happened that no one else can get, and unless you pass those on in both word and in writing, uh, we may never know. Now, the other important part here is that the patient needs to be transported for continued evaluation and monitoring. Even though the kid might look well when you see them, remember, we never sign off a 93-year-old patient with cardiac disease who had an episode of syncope. Why then would we sign off a three-month-old who had an ALTI? And then uh, even if the, ho the hospital may or may not find a cause of the event, ALTIs are tough to evaluate. There are lots of different causes. They can be very subtle in their presentation. And hospital providers will go through some type of process to define the workup for those children as well as the disposition for those kids moving forward. Great. So I think this is one of those, those cases where um, I think about your, your comment about discussing this with hospital staff. And, uh, you know, this might be one of those situations where, you know, you've listened to this podcast or you've done some research on your own. You feel you got a pretty good handle on this and you bring this patient in. And, you know, maybe you have a better handle on, on what an LT is than maybe the, the person working triage and they kind of blow you off. And this is one of those great times where there's one thing that EMS providers are really good at doing. And this is, this is from the EMT level to the paramedic level. You are great about advocating for your patient and in many cases, passionately. And if you really believe that this, there's something going on with this kid, this is one of those times where be passionate about advocating for your patient. You guys are great at this, and it, it really speaks highly of, of the EMS system that you're working in and, and that's been developed in this state, is that you really, really do advocate for your patients. And advocate for these patients, whether it's with the parent or with the hospital staff when you get there. That's a great point, Don. Thanks for that. All right, folks, well, we're just over our hour, um, so I think we're going to end it here, and uh, we'll see you back here next month, hopefully with a couple members of the MDPB to uh, start talking about protocols a little more. Yeah, fantastic, and again, as always, thank you guys for listening. Um, uh, please send us comments, send us questions, send us things you want to hear updates about, and remember, what we do matters. While we may be very temporal in the patient's time stream, we make the difference. So thank you very much.